I'm Dr. Tanya Raquel. Welcome to Whiteness Interrupted. I believe we have to collectively disrupt and interrupt our whiteness and that it will have consequences. We must choose to have resolved that it is absolutely worth it. We don't have time to wait another day. So let's begin now. Hi, Brave Souls. I am Tanya Raquel and the host on Whiteness Interrupted. I'm excited to introduce Christian Harris, uh, someone who I've only been in two meetings uh, via Zoom over the last year, who I'm recognizing as a change maker and true speaker in the community that me and my partner and family now live, um, Oak Park, Illinois. He's a lifelong Oak Park resident and he's committed to keeping Oak Park a sustainable, and great place to live uh, that embraces diversity and equity for all. Uh, He returned to Oak Park to fulfill his lifelong dream of opening a business in the community he grew up in here in Oak Park uh, called MadePro. He has a strong dedication to the community and is on the executive board of the OPRF Chamber of Commerce Board of Directors. He's also working with Walk the Walk and is uh, leading the way in a community-wide reparations potential initiative and task force. And I think that we are very honored to have him sharing space. So Christian, uh, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Very good to be here. Um, And I'm looking forward to the discussion. Awesome. So Christian, uh, I want to start off with you sharing with us um, some of the moments or experiences that paved you on your journey from not only being an activist, but also uh, an entrepreneur in Oak Park? Sure, yeah, I'm happy to to discuss that. And um, two, you know, two slightly different journeys, but hopefully I don't take too long uh, answering this question. Um, my journey to being a business owner, um, you know, <laughs> Actually, I'll take one quick step back and just say that really the two have converged a lot more lately. And I've realized that and and we'll get there in this answer. So really my journey to wanting to own my own business was around nine or 10. And um, both my parents like what they do. Um, My mom's been in HR pretty much my whole life. Um, Although, you know, she's approaching retirement. I don't know if she likes it as much as I did when I was a child (laughs) after she's now been in it for 30 years. Um, and my dad is a teacher, a uh, middle school teacher. And so and both of them generally really liked what they did, but um, I can't say that, you know, it really fulfilled them or they, um, they um, um, I can't really say that they, they loved it, although they might liked it and maybe sometimes loved it. And I just always wanted uh, something that fed me in the, that way that, that I loved. Mm-hmm. And so knew at about the age of 10 that I wanted to own something of my own. Now, I had no idea what that was going to look like or how that was going to happen or anything like that. But when it was time to start looking for colleges in um, high school, I decided to look for schools only that had entrepreneurship um, degrees, mm-hmm. which fortunately, unfortunately for me, eliminated at the time, eliminated all HBCUs. Um, because none of them had entrepreneurship programs at the time. This was like 2006, 2007 time. And so entrepreneurship was still even a new degree then. People would look at me like I was crazy, like, you're going to get a degree in entrepreneurship? How do you get a job in that? Uh-huh. It was just, my response was always the same. I plan to never work in corporate America. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, I, you know, there was a time then when I thought, okay, well, it's going to be really hard to start my own business right out of college. Maybe I'll work for corporate America for some years, but it was always the goal to not have to work in corporate America um, and to not have to ask anybody for a job. So um, when I did eventually go to Bradley University and get my degree in entrepreneurship and uh, my senior year, my mom approached me with the idea to open something of our own, a small cleaning service. And uh, she wanted to know if I would run it because she was not planning to leave her full-time job. And I was absolutely, this is my dream. And we ran with it. And I've been running that for eight years um, and learning a lot, growing a lot. Obviously, yes, if you're wondering, the past 12 months have been craziness. Mm-hmm. And um, 
we have uh, had to roll with the punches, but we are still here and, and starting to grow again. But that's really given me the flexibility to do a lot of other things that I am passionate about, um, such as uh, being active in my community. And um, really the, the things that, um, that keep me up at night, give me a lot of angst are uh, inequality in education and inequality uh, and economic inequality. And so for me not to feel that angst, for me not to feel anxious or really just this existential dread, I have to be doing something in both of those areas at all time, um, really just to live. Um, and, and I think I've learned enough now that God put that in me because yeah. he, he wants me on a particular path. Um, and uh, um, that's led me to run for political office a couple of times in Oak Park. Um, once for the Oak Park Library Board, once for the Oak Park Village Board. Uh, that's led me to serve on five different nonprofit boards and won't list out all the organizations, but um, a few housing opportunities, maintenance for the elderly on the west side, the North Avenue District here in Oak Park. Um, <clears throat> that's led me to uh, just show up, you know, and, and starting to show out, starting to learn to show out, but definitely showing up for most of the last eight years. And um, just being, making sure my voice was in the room, making sure that my perspective was at the table, making sure that I knew what was going on, that people knew, that people knew who I was, et cetera. And uh, um, more recently, it's led me to more grassroots initiatives as well, um, such as the fight for reparations, such as the anti-gentrification efforts, such as um, community bridging uh, with surrounding communities, and so that we're all not just on our little islands. Um, but <clears throat> when I think about the overall journey, my, my dad is a history teacher. I think I mentioned he's a teacher, but he, he's a history teacher in, in social studies. My mom is a lawyer. Um, I grew up in a black liberation theology church on the south side of Chicago in a community that is um, mostly uh, descendants of, of uh, American slavery. And so it was already kind of in the cards from how I grew up and to who the people that, the powerful people that I descend from, um, it was kind of already in the cards that this was going to be my journey to, to be active in my community, be advocating for people that look like me and with my lineage. And um, I, uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's good to be where I'm at right now. Thank you so much for all of that. Um, you were talking about so many things, so many thoughts on my end, but I want to start with, you were talking about um, co-owning, made pro with your mother, the cleaning service. And I recall my conversation with you. And uh, if we do have a cleaning service again in my home, I thought that your service would be the one that my partner and I would choose because I felt like it was very restorative in the sense I remember you telling me that the prices were what they were so that employees could have paid leave or vacation and insurance. And um, that to me, I was like, ah, this is, this in itself is disruptive of the norms that we a lot of times see in society. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Made Pro and what makes it unique um, in this sense? Definitely. Um, so, well, one, I wish I wish some of your fellow Oak Parkers shared that that sentiment of being willing to pay more for <laughs> to invest in your staff. But um, I can tell you a little bit about it. You know, we never would have opened this business if we couldn't pay people above minimum wage. Mm -hmm. um, and so, when we opened eight years ago, minimum wage in Illinois was eight twenty five, uh, and we were paying people ten, ten fifty an hour. Now, you can all imagine in just a few short years, minimum wage is $14. And you know, keeping up with that has been hard, but we still pay people above minimum wage. Um, we, we think that's important um, uh, to one, secure good people, uh, but also you know, kind of making sure people are paid adequately for their time. Um, we do have a, the pay, a paid sick time program where uh, they, 
get to accrue uh, paid sick time for when that, so they don't have to just, as in most hourly jobs, you just have to call off and not get paid for that day when you're sick or when your daughter is sick and they can really use this to still get paid for those days. Um, they, start, they get paid vacation days after a year and, and more every year after that. Um, they are, um, they have workers' comp insurance on them, so it's not even an independent contractor situation where, you know, you're required to cover that or, or whatnot, you know, that's, that's all on us under house and, um, they get tips as well. So it's, it can be a really great job if you're good at it, because, um, unlike a bartender where you have to make the reduced, you know, uh, server rate um, of like $5 in Illinois plus tips, you can get in this job, you get paid at the full hourly rate, your full hourly rate above minimum wage plus tips. So it's a really great job for, for people that get in and get to their sweet spot with their regulars as well. No nights and no weekends in this position. And that is hard, Tanya, I will be honest, because we have to turn down so many weekend cleans. We have to turn down so many evening cleans. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it's important. I want them to have their nights and weekends off. Our job attracts mothers with small children. Mm -hmm. And um, it's so important to me for them to be there with their children in the evening, for them to be there on the weekends, for them to rest, be able to go out to eat with the family, the, the whole thing. Um, and so we, we pretty much keep those hours between um, Monday through Friday nine to five. So there's a lot of benefits to the job, a lot of ways we structure it. Uh, we wouldn't do it any other way. I couldn't believe I was at an Oak Park Homelessness Coalition meeting um, a few years ago. And somebody said that um, the, uh, it was a discussion about how we get more people hired. Um, and we have been, we've uh, always pretty much had a relationship with different organizations in town to hire um, previously homeless people you know, as they become available. Now, one of our requirements, we do require they have a car. So that weeds out a lot of people. But unfortunately, it's no, not really a way for us to get around that. You do have to get to and from the jobs. Um, but we have hired the people that have came. Um, but I found out at that meeting that there were some, there were some, I won't even say, specify the business industry. There were some businesses in town that are not paying people minimum wage. Um, and that they were sending, you know, sending the home, homeless people were working at these places, previously homeless people. And I just couldn't believe it because I wouldn't even be in business if I couldn't pay people. Um, one, follow the laws of what I have to pay people. And then two, pay people, you know, what, what, what they deserve. Um, and so um, that's important to us. And so I hope that answers the question. Oh, it definitely does. Um... Thank you for that. So you had mentioned, um, you know, in the community, you showing up and showing out. Um, and I, I like that phrase. I, I was like, oh, that's a good, that, I hadn't heard that a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm rather new to the community. Uh, not rather, I guess, well, in terms of being, being here five years, my partner and I, you know, raising young children thinking, okay, we need to find ways for our activism to be in Oak Park. Um, and then you followed up with it's in your blood um, and the your descendants of enslaved people, um, you know, in this nation and brings us to reparations. Um, I will name I'm I believe that reparations are a debt as a white identifying woman that I owe. Um, and so I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about uh, reparations in Oak Park, some of the initiatives um that are happening and that you could share with us absolutely um you know I, I i descend from the greatest people this world has ever seen and i feel comfortable saying that here on a podcast called interrupting whiteness yes, you, <laughs> um, truth. but i sorry what'd you say i said it's truth so i mean i i just do and so i i um do everything i do is on it, everything i do is for them actually, and everything I do um, is only because of them. I can only do it because of them. <clears throat> um, and so this fight for, for reparations, it's, it's been a, a journey, but not, not such a long journey for me. I mean, I, I grew up in a black household, so I knew what, what reparations were. Um, I, I never really formalized too many thoughts about it. Um, I did think it was odd that other ethnic groups had gotten them, but never spent too much time thinking about it. You know, so much of, 
so much of what we try to do as black people in this country <clears throat> is just make it day to day. Um, and we often have to tell ourselves a variety of things just to not feel that we're swimming in a sea of unjustness and don't know which way is up. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so, so much of, uh, so much of, you don't spend too much time thinking about things like that. Oftentimes you're just trying to figure out how you can go to school, get a job, get a stable income, set up something, you know, for you and your family, and then maybe leave a little something for the next generation. If you, if you can, if you're lucky. Um, but um, this particular journey for me really started about a year and a half ago in a Oak Park meeting. Um, and I was at this board meeting and um, we were having a conversation about the new medical, no, not new medical, new recreational marijuana um, laws and whether we wanted them in Oak Park, et cetera. And um, as a part of that, I brought up that we shouldn't be supporting any um, body to come into Oak Park and build a dispensary. Of course, we already have one, but looking forward anymore, that doesn't have black ownership and that being a part of reparations in my mind. And um, more specifically, um, you know, I brought up Evanston and that they were on a reparations journey and using some of those medical, medical, I keep saying that, recreational dollars to go towards reparations. Mm -hmm. And somebody at that meeting said, what? Evanston has passed reparations and an Oak Park hasn't? And I was like, <laughs> yes. And somebody else said, oh, that kiss can't be. They'll want to jump right on that. We're ahead, we're ahead of Evanston. We're right. more progressive than Evanston. And I was just like, oh my goodness. I, I had to take a moment, take a deep breath and just say, what town do you all live in that I don't live in? Right. Um, because I don't see that happening here at all. And I am not surprised Evanston did it first at all. Um, I, I, it would be really hard lift for it to happen here. <laughs> like that's, that was my belief at this meeting. And I thought, I just assumed that was known. I didn't realize that that was a, that there was that much disconnect sometimes between white and black people on what's possible here. Mm -hmm. So that was, it had been in the back of my mind for a while, reparations and what that looked like after I read the Evanston story. And for those that are listening in that don't know, that is our, they call that, some people call it our sister town. Some people call it our cousins on the lake, whatever. There's a lot of synergies and, and similarities between the two towns. And, um, Many Oak Parkers think they're more progressive and, and more woke. And yeah. yeah. Oh, I was going to say in some competition, maybe. <laughs> some co yes, absolutely. Some competition as well. And so that was the final thing that was like, wow, I, I, I have to move forward on this, if nothing else, to, to show this town kind of what it uh, what it is. <laughs> now, of course, I will say since I've started this journey, I realized, you know, really why I'm doing it for the ancestors and whatnot. But God knows I, I'm, I'm kind of competitive and like to like to show people up. So, he, you know, he, he, he knew what it was going to take to push me down this journey. Um, and, I, and I'll get to why the reasons why he, he needed to push me down in a minute. But I started from there just doing a lot of research on the history of Oak Park. And I remembered this conversation with my history teacher dad years ago where I was talking about Percy Julian being the first black person to move here in the 50s. And he was just like, oh, no, no, I don't know much about the story. But there was a small black community here in the early 1900s that lived around the train tracks. And I just remember filing that away. And I just like, I remember my, and then uh, I, I remember my dad saying something about that and me like wanted to do some more research around that, find more. And I did, I started digging, I reached out to the Oak Park History Museum. I found a book that was authored by black residents as well as the Oak Park History Museum. I found some independent resources online and, and via the library and um, really started to piece together what happened to the black community that was by all accounts growing and thriving um, until about mid the mid-1920s, uh, from about 1880 to the 1920s, so a significant chunk of time. And um, the key event that I found that was like, we have to move forward with a case for reparations in this village was there was a Black church <clears throat> that was meeting on Lake Street, um, a storefront church. And thanks to White Oak Parkers, um, that were, uh, was, one of them was Henry W. Austin, who founded the Austin neighborhood of Chicago. Um, if anybody listening doesn't know, the Austin neighborhood of Chicago was founded by an Oak Park businessman named Henry W. Austin. And yes, there is history there that we don't have time to go into today. <laughs> but um, he was a very benevolent man, um, and he 
did help them meet um, and uh, on Lake Street. But eventually, through a lot of saving, through a lot of scrappiness, these were extremely resilient people. They saved enough money to purchase a lot right off Chicago and Kyler and Oak Park. Um, and they did. They purchased it. Um, they got a permit from the village to build their church. They were so excited. They announced their excitement in the local paper. Um, and it, the, it wasn't even, the ink wasn't even dry on the papers before local residents were stating every reason but race for why they didn't want the people to build there. And I always say if I use my historical imagination, it's the same feedback we hear today when an affordable housing unit is going up somewhere in Oak Park. Mm -hmm. um, but I digress. Mm -hmm. And I'm with you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so they didn't want them to build there. And the feedback, the, the pushback was so ferocious that they, um, the village board eventually rescinded the permit and didn't allow them to build there. And this set up, set off a chain of things. One, you know, that's one less property owned by black people in Oak Park. And I always challenge people to think, what could have been? Had they been allowed to build, maybe they build a school a couple of years later nearby. And then you have Black people being educated by Black people and creating some type of synergies there. Maybe other Black people see a community starting to build and they want to buy homes nearby. They build businesses nearby. Churches are the centers of community. We're even more so in that day. But they really are centers of community. People base a lot of where they decide to live, work, off of their faith life and off of their faith communities. Um, and so this would have been no different. Other Black people who didn't even live in Oak Park may have seen Oak Park as a welcoming place to be. And, and um, maybe the church decides to buy another building in another part of Oak Park or, or purchase another church in Oak Park. And it's important to remember, this is all things white churches, white residents did to build their wealth. They were allowed to do this and they did it and they built wealth through these things mm -hmm. when Black people explicitly could not and were, were limited from doing that. Mm -hmm. So I said, this is a specific act of the village board in limiting the growth of black community and the growth of black wealth. And we need to, um, there's a debt owed there. Um, and so started moving forward about this time last year, I met a group of great people that we planned to march after the murder of George Floyd. And um, after that, we had named the march Walk the Walk. <clears throat> and so we said, well, we can't just have marched and, and, uh, and talked the talk. Uh, now we actually, yeah, we have to walk the walk, don't we? And as with most things in activism, we lost people along the way, um, particularly as our focus has been, uh, a lot of our focus has been reparations. Um, you know, not everybody is, that's not everybody's issue. That's not where everybody's at. Not everybody agrees with it. Even people that are quote unquote in the woke camp um, or consider themselves progressive. Um, so, uh, but we've kept pushing and we have made progress with the village board and, um, that's that. Now I'd be remiss if I didn't talk briefly a little bit about national reparations too. Uh -huh. um, that's local is kind of my cause where I spend a lot of my energy, but I keep my eyes on the national movement. That is more important. I'll say it. That is more important than anything I'm doing on a local level um, because the debt is so large that it can only be ever paid by the federal government. And so there have been some movements on that. Um, basically on the federal level, it's for the debt of slavery, the debt of for 250 years, or some people like to start in 1776. Yeah. So for 90, 90 years, my ancestors were not paid wages. And then after they were systematically denied ability to build wealth, um, really until today, but, um, you know, we can look at till the 80s, you know, whatever time frame you want to look at, it's there. So, um, there have been movements on that. HR 40 is, uh, is actually moving forward for the first time. It's kind of stalled and is completely in Democrats' hands, um, completely, um, in Democrats' hands, uh, and they are not moving forward on it, uh, at all. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's actually under the Biden administration, uh, we paid reparations to Guam, a small island yeah. um, that we that we bombed and, and, and committed war atrocities in. Um, and black people are still still waiting. Uh, so mm -hmm. there's definitely still a push for it on the national level, similar to how we're going to do it here. They want to have a commission to really study what it can look like. And that's really what we're pushing for here. 
Um, and we want to pay people. We want to, on the local level, we want to pay black people for their time. So that's been kind of one of the, the holdups as we try to secure the funding. Because I'll tell you, while I do this work because it's necessary, while I do this work because my ancestors deserve it, I cannot say I like it. It is actually very hard telling the story. Um, and you might not be able to tell from, from the passion that I say it with, but it's hard. I have to say it with that type of vigor to get it out because it's really hard telling the story about how my ancestors were killed, uh, harassed and firebombed out of the town that I live in. Uh, it's really hard. Um, the dynamic that I feel like I have to ask for what I'm owed, that I feel like I have to ask um, for what, yeah, what I'm owed and that you benefit off of everything that I'm owed. And, and you know, actually, Tanya is on the um, on a local reparations group. Um, and even that dynamic <laughs> has been tough for me mm-hmm. as I've had to navigate that and feel like I'm asking for something that really should just be given if this is a, if this is a reparations work group um, that is trying to do reparative justice um, and reparative things. And yeah, I'll end there. Yeah. with um, reparations falls under reparative justice, which falls under restorative justice. And it's the idea that um, when a harm has been done, you don't punish to, to, to make sure that behavior doesn't happen again and to fix the situation. You try to repair the harm and figure out what is fair to do to repair the harm so that both the accuser and the accused come out better for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I try to take a reparative lens with with everything that I do now. 100%. I am feeling all the things. Uh, So for our listeners, I want to take a pause and say that if we live in white skin and we have heard uh, Christian passionately sharing and using his emotional labor to share uh, this information, and if we had a moment where we, our chest got tight, or we're like, yeah, I'm not on board. I think it's so important we ask ourselves why that is. And when we hear this and we, we can't stop and recognize the ways that we benefited. And especially if we live in Oak Park, um, let's name a thing, a thing. Um, I know there are some of us living in white skin that say, oh, we moved here for the diversity, the quote unquote diversity and for, for this, uh, but we can't recognize the history and we claim ourselves to be progressive, white, liberals, whatever it is, uh, that we need to do exactly what Christian just said um, and take a step back and recognize that we have a responsibility, not a commitment, we have a responsibility to pay the debts of our ancestors that we are benefiting on in this very moment. Um, and so I want, I, wanna, I wanna stop and say that um, and Christian, I want to sh- thank you for so passionately sharing. Um, this is uh, emotional work and it's um, messy and there's so much nuance um, and the things that you are doing in Oak Park um, uh, matter. And um, so thank you for that. Um, can I ask you a question? Um, how do you believe um, that we can work more collectively, more restoratively um, in our identities to interrupt this whiteness. And let, let me also say, I know that we white people also need to uh, show up, show out and also um, you know, stand alongside and behind um, at times as well. So like all of those complexities, but how can we collectively um, move forward in reparations? Um, So I want to make sure I understand the question. Is it how do we interrupt whiteness or how do we move forward on reparations? (laughs) I think they're they're combined. (laughs) Okay, they're combined. (laughs) Yeah, but but I'm like, well, right, they're kind of of doing all the things. Um, Let's talk, let's, let's keep it to because reparations is also interrupting whiteness, right? So let's keep it to how, how can we collectively, um, me and white skin, others in white skin, no matter how we identify racially, how can we continue to interrupt whiteness? Um, 
Well, black, black wealth is set to hit zero by 2050. Um, there are many beliefs that as the studies come out post-pandemic, um, it'll have been sped up by quite a bit um, because um, about half of all black businesses have closed during the pandemic. I could go through statistics after statistic, but I'll, I'll stop there. Um, it's, so this is really, honestly, in this country, this is life or death for black people. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we risk, <laughs> we risk um, a lot um, if we don't get what we're owed. Mm -hmm. um, I, I often tell people that if you don't believe in reparations, do, do you believe in capitalism? Okay, all right. <laughs> if, if you believe in capitalism, do you understand the notion of back pay? <clears throat> that for 250 years, my ancestors worked and were not paid wages. Mm -hmm. So, so, I mean, so if, if you believe in back play, <clears throat> let's just start there. Let's take what the wage should have been at that time. Um, we have to add on a whole bunch of inflation and a whole bunch of interest um, and just pay that out. Let, let's start there. Um, you know, uh, it's a, it's at the end of the day, it's a capitalist idea <laughs> that you pay people for the time that they're owed. And this country did not do that. And that money just didn't disappear, right? That money that they were able to generate off of that labor built schools, um, funded wars, uh, literally built the White House um, and, and a lot of our buildings in Washington, D.C. Uh, fueled Western expansion, um, <clears throat> allowed us to be able to steal um, Texas from Mexico and all of the trillions of dollars of oil money this country has generated off of that. Um, that uh, was all fueled by not being able to pay, not having to pay people for that work. Mm -hmm. um, so reparations is, is, just a, is just a debt that is owed. Um, and then I also remind people that this country believes in reparations. <laughs> yes. We have literally paid it out. We paid it out this year. We paid it out to Guam this year. We have paid it out to Japanese Americans after the internment camps. We have paid it out to uh, indigenous people. Now, I'll be the first one to say about as far as indigenous people go, not enough. I don't know if it could ever be enough. Um, and there's a lot of work that can be there. And while that's not my professional fight, because um, I, this takes all the bandwidth I have, um, I am 100% on board and they have my support. And when they need me to show up, I'm going to show up. Um, so, but, but we have, we paid it out and do on a yearly basis. So this country, believe it or not, believes in reparations. It's just for whatever reason, and I'll let you use your imaginations on that, why black people haven't received ours um, and why we didn't right after slavery. Um, and well, to be honest, there's some history there if you, if you want me to go, go into that history. So when Lincoln, after they win the war and Lincoln has his second term, um, they they win the war. The Union, the United States, you know, is unified. <laughs> um, he uh, he starts talking about for reparations, forty acres and a mule, and then that's when that's finally when he uh, is killed. Um, and uh, Lincoln was uh, was a man who believed in bipartisanship to uh, black people's detriment, uh, and he had a. Um, uh, Democratic, I know, uh, I know this sounds, sounds strange to us now, but he had a Democratic, which was at the time the Conservative Party. He had a Democratic vice president. So when he died, Democratic conservative guy took over mm -hmm. and uh, ended Reconstruction and any hopes of reparations, any talks of reparations for Black people in this country. Um, and it just never, the conversation never really picked up any steam again, uh, mainly because Black people became, became focused on just trying to live and survive um, in this country. So mm -hmm. cutting through all of that and thinking about how we we continue to disrupt whiteness in the process. Um, for me, it's about being bold and unapologetic about who I am, who I speak for, um, and uh, who I descend from, and why I'm doing this. For I'm doing this for my ancestors, and uh, that's hard, particularly in a town like Oak Park, because this is very much a town of. BIPOC and people of color and we need to work on equity for everyone and I'm coming in the room and saying we need to distinguish all based on lineage not not even just on blackness but based on lineage um, and, and and who you descend from 
Um, and there's a debt owed specifically to us. Um, and that is a shift um, that I, I have felt myself lose the people who are all fine when I was talking about equity in the general term. But now that I am uh, talking about um, uh, reparations and now I'm talking about justice work and not charity, but yeah. justice work, um, I've lost people. Um, I've seen people uh, uh, um, walk away, you know, and, and not, not be able to engage. I've seen my relationships change. Um, and I, I, I just have to keep being bold and unapologetic about it because my ancestors deserve nothing less. Absolutely, absolutely, Christian. Um, so I, we were talking about, you were sharing about Lincoln. So I'm going to interrupt a little bit of whiteness. So for those of us listening who have this uh, false narrative that we were taught that Lincoln quote unquote was for ending slavery, we have to be reminded that Lincoln also told former black slaves and also um, soldiers who were in the union uh, that were um, black said, if it not for you, there'd be no more, be no war. Um, and so uh, we need to read White Rage by Carol Anderson um, to get more of the, the, the truth is so important. And, um, if I could just jump in very quickly yeah, on some a piece of history that I learned very recently. When Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation, he only frees slaves in the South. He does not free any slaves in the North. It was a strategic war move. <laughs> it was not because he didn't believe in slavery. There was still there was still slavery in the North legally. It didn't not until the end of the Civil War was it illegal in um, uh, was it illegal in the North. But literally, he just issued it for the South. So that that tells you all you need to know. Absolutely, and he also invited in. Uh, individuals, leaders in the black community and tried to convince them to uh, move to Panama. Um, and so, right, <laughs> and then uh, rightfully so, they said, no, we fought uh, for the union, we're staying, and Lincoln was not happy about that. <laughs> yeah, um, wow, wow, there's so much, it's, it's layered, it's layered. Yeah. So layered, so very layered. Um, so I want to thank you for your emotional uh, labor in this conversation. And I want to uh, ask you this. Um, can we transition into jo things that bring you joy? Um, sure, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about things that, that bring me joy. Okay, so I'm not going to interrupt. My question is, what brings you joy? Um, my family uh, brings me a lot of joy. Um, my girlfriend brings me a lot of joy. Um, my faith brings me a lot of joy. Big Chicago sports fan <laughs> brings me a lot of joy and heartache and distress, but I'm trying to focus on joy. But um, it, it does bring me joy. I, lo I love sports in general. Um, music, oh my goodness, music just brings me so much joy. I don't, I don't think I ever realized why it brought me so much joy, but um, it brings me so much joy because we created it. <laughs> we <laughs> every genre in this country was created by descendants of enslaved Americans. Rock and roll, blues, country music, jazz, gospel, um, modern pop music, rap, hip hop, obviously, um, just, just on and on, bluegrass, on and on. Um, <laughs> was was all and so I, I just love music um and i love the way it um it makes me feel um so yeah so th those are some things that that really bring me a, a great deal uh, of joy and and help me help me to keep going awesome on your last day of your earthly life and you meet your maker of the universe if you believe there is one which i hear you do uh, what are you toiling for her, him, them, your God to say? Nothing. Um, I am in communication with God on an hourly basis, if I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. um, I pray multiple times a day. Um, he tells me everything I need to know each day. 
Um, and I would be upset with him if there's something, some big revelation he's revealing to me at the gates um, because he's, he's in such communication with me every day. Um, and, tell, and I order my steps in his word and I keep, and I, and I, I keep my faith going and, and keep my head up. So nothing. One last question. How do you sustain your soul in your life and work? You know, I, I really, I lead with my soul now. Mm -hmm. um, I did not always. I feel like I spent a lot of the last eight years in Oak Park um, suppressing my soul mm -hmm. um, in order to create an outward appearance that I hoped, I mean, yeah, we're, we're on this podcast, um, that I hoped would be amenable and acceptable to white people. Mm -hmm. um, so that I could get things, the things done that I wanted to get done. Um, and that came with a lot of uh, anxiety, though I wouldn't have called it that at the time. Um, that came with a lot of um, so, uh, of angst. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, it, it led me down, eventually it led me down a self-care journey because I was having anxiety attacks. Um, but I, I didn't. I didn't always leave with my soul, um, but um, I, I I lead with my soul now in this work. Um, I have to be unapologetically who I am, so that I can even do this work. Um, when I'm not being true to myself, I get anxious, and I was like, that shouldn't be on me. Is what I've had to realize. Um, I, I have to be myself in this work. I have to show up on who I am with everything that I have to offer, which is a lot. And um, this, I, so I, I lead with it and that helps me sustain it. Um, I also, of course, and hopefully to any other activists out there hearing this, you know, ha I have to have a support system. I have to um, uh, have people that are pouring into me which has really caused me, as I made this transition, transition has really caused me to have to reevaluate a lot of my friendships and have tough conversations with them, uh, demanding more. Um, being now with a woman who I love with, hope she'll be so much more than my girlfriend in the future, and seeing just the depths of support and 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 love and um, that you can get from another person. Um, it's just caused me to demand more out of other people in general, um, the people around me in general. And um, so support system is a big part of it. Um, still taking th times to do things that I love. Um, still uh, researching and always being willing to learn more. And um, if I'm looking ahead, I really think at some point it's going to take me living in a predominantly Black area to really sustain this because my entire life I've had to navigate white spaces mm -hmm. and I just want to know at some point in my life what person I am when I'm not navigating white spaces every day mm -hmm. um, and I think long term to sustain my soul I'll have to do that at some point but mm -hmm. yeah heard received and honored um, Christian thank you so much for joining this podcast and sharing of your time, uh, your energy, your passion, as well as your pain. Thank you. Thank you. It was good to be here. I appreciate the invite. Dear brave souls, take a deep breath in. Christian Harris shared his palpable pain his necessary passion to push for what is his birthright for all descendants of enslaved people in the United States living in black skin what was stolen from their ancestors and them 
we need to sit with this reality. If we live in white skin and we believe in equity, we cannot ignore history. As Christian shared, we have a responsibility, not a commitment. We have a responsibility to right the wrongs of our ancestors if we live in white skin. And now I know, I know that someone listening to this is thinking, let's get on with it. Or thinking, uh, my ancestors were not human traffickers of enslaved peoples. Yes, I said human traffickers of enslaved peoples. It doesn't matter. <laughs> if we live in white skin, we have benefited. Only one of the ways is financially, and that's a huge way. We have benefited from the history of slavery. And we continue to benefit And we have a responsibility to right the wrong. And if for whatever reason, our hearts are so hardened that we are not able or we are unwilling to see the loss of generational wealth in the black community that says so much more about us than it does about the descendants of enslaved peoples in this nation And so I think it is important that we sit with why we feel that reparations are not owed. May we sit with the truths that a race of people were forced to this nation against their will were taken from their families, their families separated, their children taken from them. And then wealth was built for generations on their labor as we, as our ancestors, attempted to dehumanize a race of people. We have to sit with this. There's so much more to it, but we just need to sit with this. And if we want to learn more, what is coming to my spirit right now is reading The Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Michael Eric Dyson. We could, as I alluded to in the podcast interview with Christian, read White Rage the truth about our racial divide. It is time that, as Christian said, we restore, we repair. It is time, it's past time 
So take a deep breath in and exhale through your mouth. You are here on this earth in this moment of time. And you have a choice. We all have a choice. To either do better or to be complicit to continued harm. I so desperately hope that we will begin to choose differently, to move centering the black community, to recognize our privilege, and who we have intentionally left out. And the parts of ourselves that we also need to heal moving forward. We are not the answer if we live in white skin. Though we have a responsibility to follow, to walk alongside, and to do what is right. So until next time, I hope each of us will choose to invest ourselves in repairing our wrongs owning our wrongs as well as that of our ancestors. Thank you for listening.